Hey, welcome to UX Coffee and Code. This is part three of our conversation on accessibility and inclusive design. If you joined us yesterday, you'll have seen me speaking with Alicia Crowther, a senior researcher over at Anaplan, about how personas can help create more inclusive designs for their users. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Emma Richens. She's a senior engineer over at the BBC, and we're going to be getting the engineer's perspective. How does accessibility and inclusive design change the way that Emma works with her creative teams? Let's go. I was a web developer for a long time. I was always aware that different users did things in different ways. But for the BBC, I worked for a little bit at a, at a council website and the accessibility kind of became a legal requirement while I was there. There was some pride in the quality of your code and how accessible it was. And I would do all the kind of checking things with JAWS and as best as I could and, and all that kind of stuff. But for me, the real realization, yeah. that kind of penny drop moment that you were talking about happened. Um, I was working with BBC Children's, which I worked for for several years. And I went along to some user research. User research is great for penny drop moments. The study that Emma's going to describe centers around improving navigation, specifically focused on the kids in their audience. Alongside her team, they wanted to understand how users made use of the different ways of navigating around the site. So they were just letting the kids play games and then asking them to navigate to a different game and asking them to navigate to a different game. And this one yeah. lad came in and he had these really thick spectacles, which meant that he would have to move his head to just the right point from the screen to be able to read. And other than that, his reading ability was really good, probably one of the best we saw that day. And, and, you know, he kind of went in and out and they were asked to speak out loud kind of what they were doing. And so he was really good about explaining everything that he was doing. And he opened up this particular game, not, not a particularly complicated game, but the instructions came up and he started to read, got his head in the right place and started to read and got about halfway through the first part of instructions and it auto advanced. And he kind of paused and went, I didn't finish that. I don't know what it said. Can I go back? And there was no way to go back. And then it auto advanced again. He hadn't even read any of the second screen. And I think there are about three screens of instructions of how to play. And he didn't get to read more than that first line or two. But for me, that was a real penny drop moment because I realized that, that actually it would have been a lot easier just to have a button that went next or skip. And that would have worked for him, but it would have worked for me as well because I could read the stuff two times over in the time that it was taking him to read half of it. And I'd have been wanting to skip ahead and he just needed it to go slower. And that was my penny drop moment is that kind of thing of, oh my gosh, that skip button, that next button would have been more accessible for everybody. I love that, you know, that, that idea that accessibility, yes, it's, it's, it's for engaging with people who, who find it the most difficult to engage with our experiences and people with disabilities, people with impairments. But it's also that fundamental factor in usability. Yeah, definitely. Because if you cannot access something, it's not usable. You know, it, it's possible to be accessible and not be a good user experience. But if you're not accessible, you're not a user, a good user experience. Definitely. That, 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 that's definitely true. <laughs> There's loads of stuff out there that we maybe don't realize um, comes under the accessibility stuff. Um, 
so, you know, the kid playing the games definitely helped me to understand that it, it kind of spans right across all your users' um, accessibility. Um, but little things like our, our research and development team found that 80% of people using subtitles on iPlayer didn't identify as having any kind of hearing problem. So subtitles are very widely used by people who don't necessarily have a hearing problem. Um, uh, with video games, I learned um, some time ago that one of the highest user groups of subtitles are like 30 something guys with a partner and a sleeping kid. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, a, a young child that they don't want to wake up and so they're using the subtitles so they can keep the volume low. As a kind of a getting slightly older person, I really struggle to read without a pair of glasses. Um, so I definitely appreciate like good contrast and being able to increase my text size slightly on my phone. So let's talk a little bit about how accessibility actually shows up in your day-to-day -day work and, and how you measure it as well. It's, it might be wrong to say, but, you know, it's, it's a bit of a hot topic at the moment. And I've noticed that in the private sector, you know, that double-A benchmark when we're looking at WCAG guidelines, double-A, it's, it's kind of heralded as this uh, industry standard benchmark. What, what do you work to? So at the BBC, we kind of have our own guidelines. Like if our developers and our, our designers are meeting our guidelines, they'll be meeting the WCAG AA standard because our guidelines kind of cover that and then a little bit more. One of the differences is just simply because we are the BBC and we can make a few decisions about how we're going to do it. So our guidelines can be a little more precise than uh, those general guidelines. I, I guess as an organization, we're trying to make sure that we are reasonably accessible for most of our users, if not all of our users, we're making sure that they can access stuff, that there are no barriers they cannot get past. They might need a little bit of assistive technology to do that, but there shouldn't be any barriers they can't get past. I think one of the key challenges in this area is creating really great inclusive experiences actually requires a good deal of collaboration between design and engineering, right? Because as a designer wanting to create that type of experience, I have to implement really great usability practices. I need to do my part on accessibility, thinking about things like color contrast, text legibility, labeling, all those bits and pieces. But then I also need to have a really great relationship with my engineering team. I need to understand how my design intent is going to be rendered into code. And I also probably need to understand the capabilities of the technology that we're building in and then how assistive technologies interact with, with that. And that's, that's a lot of it's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of responsibility. How do you balance that? And um, how do you work with your creative teams to make sure that somebody's paying attention at the right points in time? So in the kind of day-to-day, -day, um, for me at the BBC as a developer, um, it was kind of a, an essential ingredient of what we did. So, you know, our definition of done had accessibility there on the list. Um, so it was something that we thought about. Um, it was part of the kind of conversations that we had before and after the work was done. So uh, we called them pre-amigos and post-amigos conversations, if anybody's familiar with those terminologies. Um, but just conversations that would happen so that you understood what it was you were having to do. Um, and then a conversation that would happen afterwards. So that everybody agreed that you'd, you'd done that correctly. And those conversations would include the designers and the testers and the other people involved in the process. It, you know, it was maybe asking a, uh, one of the designers, you know, well, what do you think is the headings in this page? Or, you know, looking at the design and going, okay, well, which things in this page are a heading or what things in this page are a list? And, you know, kind of understanding the design properly from their point of view in a semantic way. And often as well, you know, going, well, when it hovers or focuses, 
you know, what, what should that look like? Or, or maybe kind of going, I'm not sure this color is okay. Should we be tweaking that? What advice could you give to, to say designers who, who, who maybe don't have that current close working relationship with engineering and, and are maybe just beginning their, their journey with accessibility? What are some of the common pitfalls that people can avoid or, or even think about? You mentioned headings there, which is, is one that always sticks in my mind, the, the H1 to H6 kind of, where, where do you sit on that heading level for, for any given piece of information? But, but what else can, can people be looking out for? So I think for designers, one of the things that art designers have, have done is, is they did a kind of a basic HTML course, not to learn how to code, but to learn what elements were in the HTML so that they understood what the web pages were being built from. Um, so they understood that there are headings, there are paragraphs, there are lists, there are different types of lists, there are buttons, there are links. You know, so they understood stood it at that kind of um, high level. And I think that really helps them to understand because they can start to label that stuff up on their designs. They can kind of go, right, well, this is a heading or this is a subheading. They don't need to worry about what H level that is if it's a web page or what the actual code is if it's a, uh, a mobile app. Um, but they, they can kind of label stuff up and go, well, this is the main heading on the page and these are the subheadings on the page. And, um, you know, they, they can think about it in that kind of way from a component kind of semantic component uh aspect i think that's definitely something that designers can do um i think one of the other things is just talk to your coders you know don't don't assume that this is a thing that you're going to do and hand over a wall and then you'll never see it again until it's finished (laughs) um you know it's definitely a bit of a two-way thing so uh, your developers will have ideas Mm -hmm. that will feed into your design and similarly your design might feed into what they do as a developer I guess from a designer's point of view, it's just about being really open to bringing more people into the design process. I saw a really good talk a couple of years ago by a guy called Alex Lundes, um, who at the time was working at Book and Go. I don't know if he still does. Um, and in the talk, he was a tester um, and he, he was talking very much about this concept of moving left, the conversation about accessibility. So moving it back to the developers and back to the designers. Um, so moving it left in the process, so to speak. Um, and he had done a whole bunch of analysis of, of the kind of WCAG guidelines um, and a bunch of other stuff and had done some stats and rough maths. And he reckoned that for each of those guidelines, um, there was a point where you could start thinking about it. Um, and he shared that um, about 50% of the guidelines, oh, you wow. need to start thinking about it before you're creating the wireframes. And about 95% of those guidelines you need to start thinking about before you write any code. I knew that you could think about a lot of it up front, especially as part of like foundations. You know, if you've got a design system in place or a pattern library, it's quite easy to knock things like color contrast out the park quite quickly. But I'm, I'm shocked to hear it's, it's that high a percentage. Wow. In my experience, I've worked with quite a few designers and, and engineers, to be honest, who are almost a bit put off by the WCAG guidelines. And I, I think it's, I think it's because of the immensity of those guidelines. You know, when you see them for the first time, it's this huge tome of information that's often quite contradictory and a little bit ambiguous as well. And it's funny, as you kind of progress through your journey with them, you start to realise and, and appreciate that ambiguity because it gives you flexibility in your design. And it, you realise that, you know, there aren't any guidelines that are going to have all of the answers in absence of the context that you're designing for. Well, there's some really good... Um, kind of variations um, or explainers of WCAG online. So WebAIM uh, 
introduction to the guidelines is actually really helpful um, much nicer than the kind of w3 documentation um, so i can recommend going that route um, uh, and there's some other uh, other really good websites out there as well but by all means have a look at our guidelines we tried to write them in plain english so they're fairly easy to understand although they don't um, they would cover wicag but they don't um, align with them one-to-one -one. so uh, it wouldn't necessarily I don't know um, but maybe be a bit of work to kind of figure out what's what but they're certainly uh, easy to read and understand it's great advice again and and WebAIM is a fantastic one um, oh, I always is. use the the little tools on WebAIM so things like the color contrast checkers absolutely fantastic it's it's definitely one that's yeah. always on my bookmarks <laughs> yeah there, there's a whole bunch of controls or controls there's a whole bunch of kind of tools out there that are really useful to be aware of um so things like the chrome developers tool have a thing called lighthouse that will audit against accessibility please bear in mind it will only check about 30 percent of what you should be checking um but it's useful to have that if you're hitting that baseline you're you're a long way to toward kind of the right direction, I guess. Um, so things like that, uh, like you say, WCAG um, and the WebAIM uh, provide a really nice uh, contrast checker. There's a plugin for your browsers. Um, uh, there's also plugins like Headings Map and Tab Alley, uh, which uh, one of our uh, testers created, um, which just visualizes the tab order. Really cool. All right, so let's talk advice. Uh, designers who are new to this area, what should they be thinking about? What should they be doing? What should they be reading? So uh, I, I guess there's a few things um, that I would use to kind of introduce somebody to accessibility. The first one is the hashtag A11Y is the word accessibility if you're on something like Twitter. So it's A with 11 letters in between and then a Y at the end. So the hashtag A11Y or Ali as I pronounce it is used for accessibility a lot. Um, around social media and, and Twitter and things. So that's a good place to start, is making sure that people know what hashtags to follow on social media, because there's a lot of information and conversation out there that they can tap into. One of my colleagues has a set of ground rules that he likes to kind of put in when he's having conversations with people, which is this idea that we're aiming for no hacks to not exclude anybody. So touch, mouse, keyboard, switch, assistive technology. And we're trying to design an intentional experience for each of those users as well so we've actually thought about them in, in what we do so that their experience has been designed whether they're a screen reader user or a mouse user and then for designers in particular uh, we have kind of three key things um, that are, are kind of good to keep at the back of your mind so one is color which kind of color covers you, how you use color making sure that color is not the only way that something is indicated so like an error message isn't just indicated by a red line there's also maybe a message that goes with it or something like that um, or an x or, or something that indicates there's a problem but also you can color contrast so color focus making sure you can see where the focus is and that it, it's managed well and then labels so headings alt attributes form labels all that kind of stuff just making sure stuff is well labeled so that all your users understand where they are and how to do something so color focus labels three things that your designers can kind of keep at the back of their mind and how about engineers and then i think wicag do a really great job for your devs with their poor acronym making sure things are perceivable operable understandable and robust which means it works with older technology so that's a really good acronym so you've got kind of different things for different people also for the engineers rob dodson's alleycasts on youtube are really really good 
I have one last thing, and this comes from one of our accessibility champions, is to think of accessibility as one of your essential ingredients. So when you're baking a cake, you don't add the baking powder after the cake's been in the oven. You always add it at the start. <laughs> I'm stealing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that one. So That was Emma Richin, Senior Developer at the BBC. Thank you again for joining me on UX Coffee and Code. You can join me next week when we're going to be picking up a brand new topic. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you all next week.